0: Are you an optimist or a pessimist?
1: I am. Um, what's the what's the term for it? I am uh, toxically optimistic. Toxically. <laughs> I don't know what the term is toxic optimist or toxic. Um, what's the actual term? They say, you know, when someone is so optimistic that, you know, some bad news gets presented and they always try to make it out as good. Oh. like trying to make that person feel better. Oh, really? Um, That's not a good thing, really, Mm -hmm. they say, Mm -hmm. and I'm probably guilty of it.
0: Okay. I was just thinking because uh, I don't know the exact term that you're thinking about, but uh, it's two days into summer, or actually it's two days past the the equinox, right?
1: Yeah, we lost four minutes yesterday.
0: (laughs) So there you go. There you go. The optimist, I think, would say that, oh, summer's approaching. You know, we get to go camping or enjoy the, the great weather, and, you know, we've had a pretty... Rough spring thus far uh, across the country, or at least in Alberta in regards to like some flooding and smoke and fires and whatnot. So, but then the pessimist, as you just sort of mentioned, is like, oh, we lost four minutes of daylight yesterday. (laughs) The days are only getting shorter now.
1: What I've noticed is so far this spring slash summer, there's been very few days when I could have the window open at night. Yesterday, uh, last yes, night I had the yes, window yes. open because yeah. it was, you know, 15 degrees, not mm-hmm. super cold, not raining like crazy, not uh, insanely hot and uh, um, and smoke coming in, you know, so that's nice.
0: I, I would actually, yeah, we had our windows open last night as well, a, cu- a couple of them and uh, yeah, no smoke in the morning, so mm-hmm. hopefully that holds on, but uh, kids only have a, a week, a week, less than a week, less than a week, days of school left. Mm-hmm and uh now it's yeah summer's fast fast approaching so and then stampede and all those good things at least in calgary right mm-hmm. K days afterwards and whatnot street performers festival i was always a big fan that was my favorite festival in edmonton growing up hi you're listening to the just Musings podcast with justin lee and marcus muse We're to advisors with CP Wealth Management in Alberta who finish off our weeks connecting over Zoom to discuss that week that was. Any charts or links that we refer to, as well as an archive of past podcasts, can be found at news.ca slash podcast. Please enjoy our largely unedited and unfiltered discussion for the week.
1: Thanks, Justin. Yeah. And this week we are having a lively discussion about accredited investor status and uh, different types of investments out there available to people with accredited investor status. What does it all mean? Uh, A couple of anecdotes uh, from our own experiences, and I just want to stress that we are not the originators of of sort of the regulations around this. We will put a link in our show notes on uh, the definition of accredited investor status. Uh, So take whatever we say as purely just commentary about it. Um, or give us, a, give us a call or contact us for more information on, on any questions you might
0: have. So I would like to think that both you and I um, are in favor for the, the democratization of the uh, investment world, right? Yep. And how new um, developments, you know, the EFT EFT phenomenon, it's still kind of a phenomenon because it isn't the majority yet, but, you know. ETF? Yeah. yeah <coughs> sorry. Did I say EFT? E- yeah. <laughs> ETF. Which in our
1: world, you know, it's two different things. Uh, electronic are. fund transfer or exchange traded fund.
0: Thank you. That's right. The ETF phenomenon isn't actually all that old. And mutual funds have been around and, and certainly new, new things keep coming, uh, being developed and innovated and whatnot. Um, But there's one thing, uh, and there's a certain uh, definition or or class of of investors out there that actually hasn't really had a whole lot of change or innovation since their implementation, and uh, it's the accredited investor status. And, And so just on a high level, when you hear accredited, Marcus, what do you think about? What are the first sort of things you think about?
1: I consider myself an accredited investor. I mean, I have, uh, the CIM designation. Um, yeah, I've done courses, I'm registered and all that. That seems to make me accredited. You and I, we are accredited in that way, right?
0: Correct. Yes, we are. Uh, now, how about some of the, um, I would say, let's use another example, perhaps some of the folks on, Twi- uh, on Twitter or TikTok who uh, promote themselves to be kind of uh, financial influencers or influencers and whatnot, um, you know, they do speak from a certain position. Uh, I-, I wonder if many people believe them to be uh, accredited or not or astute or they're in a position to-, to give advice and whatnot. I don't know. Any thoughts on that?
1: Sadly they they their stuff gets read, and mm-hmm. people do take their quote unquote advice as meaning something. I think I don't think anybody is is fooled into thinking that you know, a hobbyist's blog on online is actual financial advice. I think everyone does take it with a grain of salt, most people at least. Mm-hmm. but I still I think too many self-directed investors might use that as an influence in what they do. Mm-hmm. you know, when these guys, for example, and you know, you might be getting at this, my tussle with some people in the dividend realm where there's you know certain online, I call them investment hobbyists, who really just promote dividend investing and keeping track of how much they're getting in dividend income streams and dividend growth, uh, that type of stuff. There's mm-hmm. one particular one. He's, uh, I think, one of the biggest uh, on Twitter in that regard. Uh, I think he just calls himself dividend growth investor, has like hundreds of thousands of followers. Uh, he's blocked me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so no, no, those would not be accredited investors, um, and I would consider, you know, if we're talking about the term accredited, I would assume most people who have not done the Canadian Securities Course or the Series Seven in the U.S. or whatever, mm-hmm. would not be accredited. Mm-hmm. But they are,
0: right? Uh, they would be, yes, and it, and it really lies on a on a few specific definitions or terms. And and Like I mentioned, um, there hasn't been a lot of innovation uh, or changes or updates to those terms in in the last few decades, up until perhaps somewhat recently in the United States where they came up, and also Mm -hmm. probably a little bit in Canada, uh, which I think I'll probably uh, delve into a little bit uh, uh, momentarily. But for the most part, there's individuals who are investors and then there's almost like institutional. So institutional would be something like large pension plans, uh, governments, foundations, uh, or you know organizations that have a substantial mm-hmm. amount of either assets and or um, uh, people that are, are working on their behalf to make sure that their investments are um, diversified and, and adhere to whatever you know the the investment objectives and, and goals that each of those institutions have. Individuals, uh, we generally don't have for the you know for the most of the listeners out there I would imagine have like what they would call like our own family offices we don't have uh, on payroll um, portfolio managers accountants lawyers things of that nature right you know we, we do utilize other people's uh, services and professional services in, in that case but we don't have them on you know full-time as employees of my family for example but mm-hmm. nevertheless, so accredited uh, or, you know, is, is sort of a, an area where a lot of people like you and I normally or like, you know, layman's on the streets wouldn't necessarily think about it. Like, would they be accredited or not? And what the real delineation is, is that can you invest in things that some other people or mostly other people are not allowed to? So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. when you put up a, a fence, right, whether it's a chain link fence or a wooden white picket fence or even just like a, a little little piece of plastic between you're, you're separating something. And so now people on one side are wondering, what's over on the other side? How come I'm not allowed to go invest in these, these things? And what are those things? Those mm-hmm. things that accredited investors are allowed to invest in are typically around in the realm of private companies, uh, venture capital, private lending, um, pre-IPO private placements, um, things that traditionally uh, would be considered to be high risk. Uh, risk with uh, the chance of obviously higher reward, but also uh, with the risk of, uh, let's call it zero, getting zeroed out, a, t- a complete loss. And and so years ago, and this goes way back until like, you know, the US Securities Act of 1933. So we're talking like almost a century, <laughs> right? So this is sort of the origins of what an accreditor, accredited investor is. But the real, the, the, the gist of the, the numbers and the things I'm just going to explain right now, haven't really been changed since probably the early 1980s. So you can be an accredited investor and be allowed to invest in some of these esoteric unique little things like pension plans do and other people do. Go on.
1: And just to clarify, the rules in Canada are fairly similar to the U.S. So we started with the U.S. Uh, the act in 1933 and Canada sort of adopted a lot of the same stuff, right?
0: To the dollar. To the dollar, that's yeah. right. So, if you made two hundred thousand dollars in income over the past two years, and have an expectation of continuing that that level of income, as an individual, two hundred thousand dollars a year, a year uh, net, you would be considered accredited. Or, if between you and a spouse or partner had three hundred thousand dollars of combined income, you would both be considered accredited if you had $1 million of liquid financial assets. So assets that could be um, sold and may uh, be readily available. So whether that, you know, TFSA, RRSP, non-registered accounts, checking accounts, anything like that combined, if you had $1 million net, then you'd be considered accredited. And then there's one more about $500 million, sorry, $5 million in total assets. So that could include um, Illiquid assets, primarily people's homes, right, mm-hmm. and, and, and perhaps a second property, vehicles, whatever the case may be. Five million dollars there, or the condition that you and I just earlier talked about is that if you are a registered person as an advisor or a portfolio manager um, in you know the respective country. So those are the general terms. You know, we won't go into the institutional side of things, but for an, uh, an average person, those would be the conditions. One of them would have to be achieved or reached in order to be considered accredited. Uh, and, and so then, you know, is what's the point of being accredited? Is it actually worth your time? Is it worth most ninety-eight, ninety-five percent people's time out there?
1: Marcus, so no one, no one that doesn't qualify under those categories already, who isn't a registered person like we are, can become an accredited investor on their own, right? They can't go mm-hmm. sign up for the Canadian securities course, which you can do as an individual. There is a sort of a retail version of the course, right?
0: For personal, personal learning, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Education.
1: So you can't, you can't go and do that and become an accredited investor. Or in other words, a university professor in finance cannot become an accredited investor if they don't make enough money or have enough net worth. Is that correct? Currently, currently,
0: currently, currently. you are correct currently. So here's an example of someone who's perhaps maybe yeah a professor in finance, or maybe he's taking their MBA or is almost finished or completed their, uh, or maybe even is a, you know, a CPA, a Chartered Professional Accountant, right? Uh, and, and for the most part, even though they may have to be dealing with um, numbers and investments and you know being fairly financial astute, uh, by, the, by the pure outright definition of those numbers that we just mentioned, they wouldn't be considered accredited. But there's some changes that have been proposed. And, and most recently in the United States, um, there was a proposal in the House of Reps, that um, I think it's, it was the Fair Investment Opportunities for Professional Experts Act. That's a multiple, right? But you can kind of professional tell- Professional experts. That professional experts. So it <laughs> remains to be seen what, you know, this is what, what, what fully constructs out of this, right? But the general mm-hmm. thought would be that if you were, um, again, you know, a, a chartered uh, business uh, uh, evaluator or you were a chartered uh, professional accountant, um, Probably not a professional engineer, right? It's gotta be something related or particularly has a day-to-day exposure to uh, numbers, accounting, finance, things of that nature, right? Um, It's been proposed, so we'll see if there's some changes on that. There's also another one, the Accredited Investor Definition Review Act, right? And so this is something where they've actually suggested and, and they're thinking perhaps if an individual uh, were to get the appropriate credentials or certification. so maybe it is a you know a, um, a comprehensive evening course at the local college or maybe mm-hmm. it's in Canada the Canadian securities course right and maybe it's um, proving some testing some you know some designation, then perhaps that would also be eligible to be an accredited investor. So there's there's some changes that are being proposed right now. And and the thing is, is those numbers that we talked about, two hundred thousand dollars a year in income, three hundred thousand dollars in combined income, those are you know, large numbers. They are, undoubtedly, in today's dollars. But those numbers were actually basically instituted like in the eighties. So by So they used to be very
1: large numbers, yeah, very now they're... large numbers. But
0: by inflation, I mean, you know. It's not 30 cent a liter gasoline anymore like the 80s. It's a dollar fifty. So, you know, 200 thousand dollars income in the 80s is, you know, you're looking at half a million dollars probably in some senses, right?
1: You would assume that that person definitely has a university degree and must have some financial know-how to get to that level of income, or those that level of, of uh, net assets. Potentially,
0: and now that's part of the implied, you know, experience. so. But back back in the time, they just went with some hard numbers to go with, right? And and, and so you know, you can have extraordinarily uh, intelligent and and, and well, uh, you know, people who are very comfortable in the finance space but not have those numbers, and on the opposite side, you can have some very wealthy people who easily achieve those numbers but are are financially ignorant, right? And so for someone to have a, a very large bank account but is financially ignorant, to be them to be considered, this is part of the debate, is that are those really accredited investors or are they just investors that are able to withstand a loss a potential loss in their investments right so on a, one side or the other what, what side of the debate you look at but you can certainly see that you know there's certainly a lot of wealthy ignorant people out there and there's also a lot of very astute uh, intelligent people who just don't make two hundred thousand dollars a year right i don't know yeah. what the average uh, finance professor is at the university is making these days but uh um it might be difficult
1: yeah, the, the whole spirit of the accredited investor rules is, is well understood. It is obviously to restrict access to certain investments that can cause a lot of financial pain if uh, if someone who is not as financially astute got into them. So on the one hand, this restriction now has caused some, I guess, some pushback from the public at large. And that's maybe what pushed these changes through in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was happening in the last couple of years, a lot of wealth was made in owning private companies, which then would go public. And when they become public, usually the stock goes down. You know, you saw a lot of this. A lot of these <laughs> companies that went public in the last couple of years, you know, you think about, you know, your Beyond Meat and uh,
0: Spotify, for example. Rivian, some electric vehicle companies, things of that nature. Spotify, Rivian's, well,
1: Yeah, Rivian's gone down a lot. I'm not, Spotify's probably been okay, but. 52-week value, I
0: think, actually, to be, to be honest. But yeah, for, yeah, the past for, year, for
1: the past year, right? Um, so like all, all the wealth, so you rewind twenty, thirty 20, 30 years, there was a lot of wealth that could be made buying an internet startup company. That company would IPO at an early stage of their development when they were still worth only $100 million or something. And the general public got to, access, got, got to participate in that growth from that point forward, owning the public stock. Nowadays, it, it's become much more and more, and it's probably because there's so much money in the hands of these private companies. Uh, investors you know the uh, the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world and the Peter Thiel's and so forth they' they're the ones providing a lot of the capital financing to a lot of high-tech startups that's keeping these companies private for a lot longer and thus uh, the the average non-accredited investor just doesn't get access to them or only gets access to them once they're at a really insanely high valuation when they go public and then only they only participate in, in the, the, the losses from that point on. And I think that's mm-hmm. maybe what kind of pushed these uh, these pushed for these changes in the U.S. I mean, it might eventually come to Canada uh, so that it, they're more accessible to average investors. Because just because someone doesn't fit a certain financial profile, mm-hmm. they shouldn't be excluded from these types of investments. If someone can prove they have the know-how, they understand the risks, uh, they know that this is money at risk, that they could lose everything, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. now the, the other side of it, though, too, is... I have found over the years too often the accredited investor rules, because they have, because they're in real terms, they're now so low, much lower than they were in the 80s, because so many people do fall into that category. A lot of people in the mass affluent class, you don't need to be high net worth to have a million dollars in financial assets. That's not considered high net worth anymore. That's considered mass affluent. And and an income of 200,000 too is is not like super, super high, relatively speaking these days. So a lot of people who don't have the financial know-how are falling into the categorization of mm-hmm. accredited investor and are being sold certain products by mm-hmm. certain um, companies out there that, that specifically create these spe- just for accredited investors. And and, and, and you end up with people, people being in these types of products who absolutely shouldn't be because they just don't have the know-how. They don't know what they're getting into, but some salesperson told them, okay, you're, you check off the check boxes you're an accredited investor, so you can put your entire uh, retirement plan
0: into this. So on that note, what are some of the examples? And I mentioned a, little, a couple of them right now. So what would be the sort of accredited you know, investments that are right now only eligible for uh, or mainly eligible for accredited investors? That off the top of my head, I can think of um, private real estate. So kind of yeah. like a publicly traded real, real estate investment trust, but in, in, but a private one. And they might own different assets or different buildings or different you know property uh, in different particular maybe uh, specific sectors you know maybe you're investing in office towers in in denver or maybe you're uh owning car washes in, in the southwest right something like that something you know a little bit different from some other uh real estate but instead still, it's still it's still real estate
1: yeah and that's a perfect example like I, I brought the example of like these these high-tech startups and stuff, but Mm -hmm. very popular, especially here in Alberta, are are these real estate funds. Now, if you're an investor and you're a non-accredited investor and you want to invest in real estate, what are your choices? Borrow a ton of money from the bank and buy some kind of rental property where you can lose a lot of money on, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, (laughs) (laughs) or buy a REITs, buy buy one of those standard uh, REITs that are out there. And often with those types of REITs, you end up having just a lot of because these REITs, they you know they they collect you know the mon- money comes in. They have to invest in various prop- uh, various properties. They tend to invest in a lot of the larger things out there, which can also be riskier, as we found in the last little while. I'm sitting in, in an office tower where our floor is almost entirely empty except for us. Where I know if I was the owner of this office tower, I don't see any way that they're making money,
0: mm-hmm. or the
1: mall that's attached to it. There's no way it's making money. But smaller private real estate investments are able to invest in smaller things, smaller office parks uh, smaller industrial parks, things like that, which by themselves, I think actually have a lower risk profile than buying an office tower. So what I'm getting at is when you're in these bigger, these bigger, more publicly available things, they have to buy the big things. They have to buy office towers, malls, things like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas the smaller things, which are only available to credit investors can buy the less risky, smaller properties, which, you know, might, might end up, I I can't, I can't guarantee anything, but they might end up with better outcomes for those investors who are able to get into them.
0: Sure. Uh, aside from real estate, you know, we did talk about uh, technology uh, or some kind of like the startups or the late stage growth companies, as some would say. Uh, I, I, You know, from, from, I will say, you know, personally, a personal disclosure, um, I had invested uh, pre, pre-public uh, in an investment vehicle that owned shares in DraftKings. And my wife had owned shares in Airbnb before they went public. And then once they went public, then we you know, could sell it if we choose to. And then there was certainly a pop-up um, because of the time they IPO'd uh, or they went public and also the demand for names like that. I mean, Airbnb is ubiquitous. We've all probably, most all of us have used that service. And DraftKings, well, I don't actually use the service and I, I subsequently sold it. Um, it's, you know, that them or their peers are in every single, you know, sports channel in between every sporting uh uh, sports broadcast right so um they're pervasive as well so yeah, that technology stuff i i'll also say um that i do have a client in that is in uh that owns a a little bit of spacex right spacex is a is a private company right the one one of the companies out there like how the heck do you you know shoot a rocket and then land its you know booster back onto this floating platform in the ocean sort of idea and right and we know who you know the owner is and all of that so it's sort of a it's one of those trophy names, right? That people think, oh, that's a really neat company or that's a really innovative company, right?
1: Here's a perfect example. You brought up Airbnb and like, let's talk about where was the wealth made on Airbnb? Mm-hmm. So Airbnb IPO at $68 a share. On the day it IPO it traded up to $146 a share. Do you know what it's at today?
0: Uh, 30, 40 something, 100 and
1: $125. Sorry, $25, my bad. So. Okay. <clears throat> If you were one of the very, very special people that was able to buy it on the IPO, and we're talking about you know probably just the highest net worth uh, investors at the biggest firms who got access to that IPO, mm-hmm. um, you bought at sixty-eight, and you've you've almost doubled your money. If you were someone like yourself who got access at, uh, at the pri- in the private markets, do you remember what price you were able to access it at relative to today's less, public share price? Less than
0: or peer, or equivalent to the IPO price.
1: So less than sixty-eight dollars. Mm-hmm. Everyone, absolutely everyone who bought it on the public markets, unless you bought it at the beginning of this year at uh, eighty-five bucks, uh, pretty much everyone. It went as high as a hundred and well, over two hundred dollars. Uh, everyone in the public markets has lost money on it, pretty much. And mm-hmm. so, what's what's what, what kind of gets me about the whole accredited investor thing is. The mm-hmm. public markets are fair game for everyone. So yes. everyone can knock their knock their socks off buying this company, losing a bunch of money. Yep. Everybody can also buy Bitcoin and stuff with no, yep. there's no restrictions there, lose all their money, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, micro caps, things on the venture exchange, whatever, no problem. But getting into a private company uh, because its information is not as publicly disseminated or publicly available because it's not as liquid, that's why there's these rules where mm-hmm. the average person... Or the average person who doesn't qualify for the accredited status can't get into it, can't participate in that wealth, uh, wealth appreciation.
0: Yeah, one of the things that came up in the in the in the, in the United States uh, when they're debating this is that uh, you know, to your point about accessibility or having just kind of a uh, availability for a, a broad spectrum of people to potentially benefit from is that they they may sp- explicitly made a couple comments about how right now in the United States uh, only. Uh, of all the accredited people who reach who are accredited investors, uh, 1.3 of them, 1.3 uh, percent, are African American, and 2.8 mm-hmm. percent of them uh, are Latino, uh, or Latinx, and, and so you see that what they're looking to do is try and again. Broaden have the ability that a, a broad section of, of the population, a much broader sec, uh, section of the population, can participate in these uh, wealth generation uh, wealth generating or, or profitable situations, and not just kind of people who've structurally benefited from generations or or just happen to you know uh, um, have a de- definition fall into their lap, right? So accessibility, to your point again, I think is one of the main key reasons is that they're looking to again. To use the term democratize or the ability or you know have the uh, more and more people uh, um, have the opportunity to to build and and retain wealth you know but the thing is you know aside from like tech companies and you know another area that comes up is uh, private lending Uh, a lot of the banks these days particularly in Canada where we are a little bit more conservative in our financial institutions um, they've been required you know the The financial superintendents and and the regulators have actually said that we want you bank, big bank A, B, C, D, E, we want you to increase your loan loss provisions because we know that interest rates are increasing. We know that there's going to be a higher likelihood of of loan losses that you have uh, entered into. And so we want to make sure that you can handle it. And so incrementally as those reserves increase or, or they've been told to reduce their business and lending to small and medium businesses, perhaps, uh, who are, generally speaking, more risky than, say, large enterprises, private credit or private lenders will go into that void to then say, hey, well, if your regular bank says no longer we want to lend you money, we will come in and we'll lend you money uh, instead. And they might have very good credit or they just need some uh, an influx of cash for, uh, due to timing of maybe, you know, a project or assets, you know, or accounts payable coming versus uh, accounts receivable or accounts receivable coming, I should say, then accounts payable and such. So there's, so there's areas where lending has come into play, and it's become a larger and larger portion of sort of that credit market, right, not just the fixed income world. So that's another area that, uh, um, that um, I guess, is sort of uh, off limits to currently to the average retail investor. Um, trying to think of some other uh, areas that uh, people <laughs> that people phone called me about or talked about is that uh, you know in, infamously right now uh, just outright businesses. So one of the largest uh, names out there in private equity uh, has uh, has had issues with their uh, private real estate business. Uh, but aside from that, they also have other uh, investment funds that actually own other businesses outright. So one example that I think about is that they you know this private equity fund. Owns not tech companies per se, but they own sort of a, for example, uh, a, a luxury perfume company that's been around for a couple hundred years in France, right? Very expensive and then aside from you know another one that they also own is that they own uh, a business that owns a number of brands that you and I will come across by walking through the mall or going shopping at Costco these are names that are no longer the own underneath the ownership they're basically like franchised out right so if you go to a certain store you know they have a brand on their on or they're selling mm-hmm. a piece of clothing that has a label on it right the owner of that label then gets a cut of that uh, of that uh, of those of those revenues as well so these are like you know not what you necessarily may consider to be high risk Sort of businesses, right? But are actually just businesses that are, are steady, have been around for j- decades, if not centuries, and the owners have decided that maybe they want to, uh, you know, for estate purposes or just wanted diversification themselves, decided to sell a little bit uh, themselves, but you know, retain some management in there, right? So, another area that is sort of, it's, it's businesses, it's just that they end up are privately traded or privately owned. And there's far more privately owned businesses out there than there are publicly owned businesses, right? So,
1: it makes sense to to invest in them in some regards because they kind of are like the last frontier of investing in a way in that our public markets have become so heavily traded and so efficient as a result yes that often there isn't much alpha to be found in just buying publicly traded companies like
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you ever read the book um we talked about it a couple of podcasts I so want to keep forgetting a guy's name peter lynch's uh is it one up on wall street mm. he talks about buying you know the stock in whatever company. You know he notices his wife uses this type of uh, pantyhose product in the 1980s or whatever. So he buys that pro- he buys that stock, and it it did well. And he kind of his thesis in his book is buy what you know or buy what you see other people using. And there was a time when the markets were much less efficient, when that might have worked. Uh, nowadays, though, it doesn't because everybody's buying it already. Everyone already knows what's going on and you know wh- who's the what's the popular thing being being hawked yes. on TikTok or whatever and. Uh, but there's these private companies where the price is not efficient. Obviously, anytime a anytime a company goes IPO and you see the IPO price, you know the IPO is at IPOs at sixty eight dollars and it goes to one hundred and fifty dollars on the open markets right away. You know that's an inefficient price. So the only way you can access that inefficient price was through the private markets or you know through the IPO system. Mm-hmm. You, on the public markets, it's hard to get an ine- inefficient price because most prices are very efficient. Uh, Going back to Ben Graham's stuff, you know, Ben Graham talks about the way to make money. It's not about, you know, not about your your investment going to the moon and making much money that way. It's about buying a a company cheap below its intrinsic value. So finding that inefficiency, which just isn't there anymore in the public markets as much. But yeah, it it is very much there in the private markets. That's why you'd want to buy something like that.
0: I think that I would love to own a slice of the guy who just, you know, fixed my car this weekend is charging me two thousand dollars to replace some <laughs> pump and some clamps and and uh, fill you know replace the fluids right. I'd also probably be interested in owning potentially a slice of a of a certain you know mall food court business, a mom and pop owned food court business when I when I hear just how busy it can be right. So there's many many private businesses out there that you know don't need to be publicly traded. They're too small and and for the most part you know they're in particular niches. And, and that's, again, I bring those examples up is, is because one of the other testimonials that came up during this debate in the United States was that um, one of these ladies uh, had started up her own business. And the thing is, is that her mother, her retired mother, took out money from her own retirement savings in order to backstop her daughter's business, right? That is by definition venture capital. You are, t- mm-hmm. but you know there was no restriction, right? And and that you know, but on a, if you multiply that on a larger scale, all of a sudden it becomes more regulated and there's more rules in place and whatnot, right? But if, if a friend's asking you to borrow money, or you know, to, you know, to you know, to you know, to buy part of their business or help their funding this, or you have a family member that's looking to you know, buy a house and you need, you know, would you like to help me out with the down payment and I'll pay you back in a couple of years, whatever the case may be. You know, those are venture, those are venture situations, and and those are things that a lot of people are exposed to informally, um, and are just as risky as trying to buy or trying to wanting to invest in some Silicon Valley no re- no revenue you know startup business, right? And and arguably, you know, these are very you know. Her mother, for example, would have obviously understood who was running, who the entrepreneur was, had faith in the entrepreneur, understand and understood what the business proposition was. I mean, it was her retirement money after all, right? So there had to be some analysis on that. Um, but that amount of information, or perhaps the lack of, you know, detailed financial, ins- you know, that is, in a lot of ways, what a lot of private equity media or or what is venture, and and to restrict that. On a, on a larger basis was part of the argument is to say, no, a lot of people do it already in informally. It's just, this is a matter of raising a similar type of, mm-hmm. of money. I wouldn't be able to do that with perhaps just a total stranger. But if a total stranger had the had, was interested in, and had the funds available, then to tie those people together would require uh, something that was a little bit more uh, regulated.
1: What I'd like to see them change in the accredited investor rules, because too often I see situations where, and oftentimes people come to me out of the blue. They find me online. They're just looking for someone to, you know, help them understand what they're invested in. And they come to me and they say they've got all of this, uh, all of their RSP money or RIF money or whatever invested in this, whatever private company. And it's become illiquid. It's gone broke or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to tell them, unfortunately, there's not much you can do about this. I've seen really terrible situations. One where the um, I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast too. Uh, the, the, the person came to me, they were they just retired from one of the major uh, refineries here in the Edmonton area and put their entire uh, locked-in retirement account, what, what they transferred out of their pension plan at, at the refiner, the entire amount into a real estate um, type of uh, um, private investment. And as what happens with some of them, it went completely bust. And so all the money that was in their locked-in account, basically was not quite bust yet, but it was illiquid. And over the years over the past couple, of, after, over the past decade now it's been a thing the investors in this particular investment fund were starting to get some of their money back. You probably know which Calgary company I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it, too often what I see is it's in registered money. Another case was a 90-year-old or 80-year-old, uh, older gentleman who was in had all his money in his RIF in one of these things, and it went bust. And he was forced to continue to make RIF payments because the RIF still had a value. The investment was not marked down to zero yet, it was just mm-hmm. in liquid and it was going through a court proceeding through bankruptcy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so in his account, it was still at a value of like $90,000 or whatever. And the, uh, the institution where this uh, where this was located, the trustee basically of this uh, RIF uh, was forcing him to move portions in kind out of the RIF into a non-registered account and pay the tax on it. Whereas if this was a liquid mm. investment, it would have just gone down to zero mm-hmm. and he wouldn't have to pay the tax. At least he'd have learned his investment lesson. And he was in good enough financial shape to afford that loss, but he was having to pay this, this imaginary tax, which is, is terrible. So what I would like to see is... You know, you have these accredited investor rules which kind of try to, you know, classify people based on net worth and try to, uh, you know, keep these investments from people who don't have enough net worth. Why not just make a rule that says absolutely no registered plan money goes into these investments. No RSP money, no RIF money, no TFSA money. If you are going to be in these investments, you need to have enough net worth that you have a sufficient amount of money outside of those registered plans that you can put at risk in these investments. Why are these why are they ever registered plan eligible they should not be because that's when you get these issues happening Same goes for TFSAs if you know you put your TFSA money in one of these things and it goes to zero that TFSA money is basically it's gone right You don't get that contribution room back
0: Yeah no and, and I think the reason why largely that it, it used to be a new numer- it's currently a numerical based uh, 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 analysis is that you, they want the regulators wanted people if they were investing in such investments that you know should there be larger or the potential of losses or the potential of lack of liquidity they had the financial wherewithal to be able to manage that right so if you couldn't sell it oh I have some other savings I have some other assets I can I can sell and utilize or maybe it did you know it actually was a you know it went to zero. Right. And if that oh I can still live my life, I can still pay for my bills in that sense. You know, not having an a registered account, most of the you know, the not, the accredited type investors or investments that I see these days are not registered plan eligible and and in some senses it's good in, in you know to your point because you know you're not touching retirement income or income that is in an area, you know, for a child's education or potentially for a down payment on a home, right? So that's a, that's an that's an interesting twist on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I see far too many of them. It's right in the advertisements that mm-hmm. it's that it's registered plan eligible. I mean, they pop up on my Facebook feed mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. registered plan eligible. And what happens too often is, and I'll be I'll be totally honest, my my portfolio that I manage, the uh, the income sleeve of that portfolio has a 15% allocation to a Uh, a private real estate investment that is only available to accredited investors. As a portfolio manager, I'm able to use it in my portfolio for all my clients, even if they are not accredited investors. On behalf, yes. Uh, But it's a 15% allocation of the income sleeve, which whittles down to less than 7%, uh, maybe at most 7.5% in my 50-50 allocation. Mm -hmm that's a small allocation worse comes to worse it's it, you know it's it's not even what people saw declines of in the bond allocation last yes. year with bonds having yeah. gone down 15% mm-hmm. um, whenever these private investments are sold and usually there's there's sales forces of people that are that specifically what they do is they sell these types of investments um, or it's the companies directly selling them uh, they're often putting people 100% into them. And that's the crazy thing. This is not people mm-hmm. buying them in a discount brokerage account, putting a small allocation into this real estate fund. Mm-hmm. It's some person, a salesperson with a bunch of documents, going to their home, signing them up, telling them this is a great investment for your retirement. You're going to make 10%, 15%, whatever, annually. Forever. Uh, so, And those are the types of things that average retail investors are going into. Maybe they heard on the radio, they went to see the salesperson, and they qualified them to... Are you are you accredited? Do you mean, Okay, yeah, you've got enough income. We can count you as accredited. Or um, oh yeah, you do have a million dollars somehow in investments. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Whatever. Yeah, no, it's. I talked about that fence. Like, what's on the other side of that fence? And and for a lot of things, you know, there are some good investments out there that are private, that are illiquid, and 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 you know. Most of the pension plans. You look at the details of the CPP or uh, Ontario Teachers or, or even AIMCO here in Alberta. Mm-hmm. A substantial portion of their investments are in private illiquid investments, and 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 so why are they doing that, right? And it's you know it's it's for the potential for uncorrelated to public market returns. Diversification, it's Diversification. Right? It's for stability. Maybe it, it's a solid income generating uh, business. You know, for example, today I, I heard I saw in the news that uh, I think it's Omer's. One of the major plans in the United uh, Pensions in, in Ontario, they're looking to buy a portion of Maple Leaf Entertainment, right? And, you know, they're going to own a bit of the And budget. Maple Leaf
1: Entertainment is, is an investment that has been bouncing around between all these different uh, pension yeah. plans over the years here, right? It's letting teachers owned it for a
0: while in Ontario. And, and so the thing is, like, you know, I was sort of joking, is like the Maple Leafs, do you want that, you know, does a pension plan rather uh, a sports team to be a winning sports team or a team that just continues to generate gate and, and revenue? right? And and Mm -hmm. so, you know, there is an uncorrelated investment, a professional sports team and probably the most, one of the most rabid fan bases in in the world, right? In Toronto. So they are looking for uncorrelated, uh, different type investments, right? To offset those things, you are getting higher fees likely. You know, most of these uh, private investments have a a higher uh, management expense ratio, they have performance fees, they got uh, waterfall, you know, a lot of things that will in the end that's how they make their money the general partners that you know they make their money but you know it's or illiquidity as you said sometimes these things you know they, they're not daily they're like just like our house isn't marked daily or the value of our homes are not marked daily neither are these most these other investments they're marked maybe perhaps uh, quarterly annually perhaps you can only invest or sell quarterly monthly annually Right, And even then, potentially, like uh, one of the major pensions out there that have started to do is that they've, or sorry, not pensions, one of the major private equity investor uh, institutions out there, what they've had to do now is gate, meaning they limit the amount of redemptions that they allow per mm-hmm. client per quarter, right? And so these are all, all major trade-offs. And so the grass isn't necessarily always greener. It is certainly potentially very attractive, but there are a lot of trade-offs to be made, right, in, in order to invest in them.
1: Those are certainly the biggest risks, the mm-hmm. uh, the liquidity of the investments. And I think that's the main thing that differentiates between accredited and non-accredited, because obviously you can get publicly traded investments available to everyone that are super, super risky and go down to zero. Yeah. But I think the big thing with uh, investments available only to accredited investors are those which are less liquid, less than daily liquidity. Um, or in that case, can can stop liquidity entirely. The thinking is that a non-accredited investor needs to be in something that they at least can liquidate on the open market if they absolutely need to. that they cannot be in an investment that says nope, you don't have access to your money. Mm-hmm.
0: And so I think there you know the intention. What I, where I'm thinking, my headspace is, is that I think the intention of the credit investor rules are, are relatively sound. There's a principle behind it, is that you do not want to have most people invested in things that are, are a little or are, a are, um, liquid, uh, maybe mm-hmm. hard to sell or have higher fees, even with the potential for higher returns, is that it may not, it generally doesn't fit. And then oftentimes people will invest more than they probably should. Like you said, you're seven and a half or 15% weighting in your fixed income side. Uh, of your model is that it's it's limited to that portion and and for mo- many people out there um, they don't use the same parameters that a portfolio manager uh, would do because it's you know it's their own personal investments um so there, i think and and of course should you know not all of these investments i don't think the maple beliefs are considered you know a, a risky investment in a lot of ways right but um there are risks there are investments out there that have gone to zero or the firm that is investing in them have gone to bankruptcy right whether it's land development or uh, you know, software or what have you, right? And, and so there is the risk of loss, which is why they always explicitly write these things in the documentation. You have to be able to withstand these double potential for losses, even though the potential might be very negligible if, if any, right? But there's others that have completely gone to zero, hence the the, the details, right? So I think the rules, the, the spirit of the rules, I think are, are appropriate. Um, opening it up to everybody I suppose everybody can make money everybody can lose money too right you're just opening all those options out for everyone and and I do but I and I, I wonder if these proposed rules that are in the United States right now invariably will come to Canada is that will it benefit all of us is it doesn't even make sense for most of us even to consider right like yeah maybe I can go right maybe I can go write a course and then say that I'm accredited and then start investing in some private real estate right but is it, is it really worth my time
1: that's what I was just going to ask: Is do we need uh, these types of investments in our in our portfolios? Do we need private investments and alternatives and all this other other stuff? Mm-hmm. I think not. I think a portfolio is complete if it owns a diversified uh, mix of, of publicly traded stocks around the world, uh, in combination with bonds, based on whatever your risk tolerance level, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's a nice to have, right? It's especially nice. if you have the risk the the risk appetite for it. It's a nice mm-hmm. to have.
0: It is. I think so. I think you're right. I think for the vast majority of people out there, the vast even the institutions out there, in a lot of ways, uh, the public markets are, are, are large enough that you can kind of get your appropriate uh, targets and your your appropriate goals achieved through those vehicles. But should there be something uh, that is uh, private or illiquid that fits your fits your situation, maybe particularly um, like real estate, or maybe uh, you want to uh, loan money at a slightly higher rate, or you want to get the same rates lending out money as the banks do and not what, the, they, what they pay out in GICs, right? I, I think there are, are uh, appropriate bites that uh, certain investors can, can take in order to do that. And, and coming from experience, both personally and on behalf of some of the clients, you know, some of the uh, private investments that we have gone through have done um, extraordinarily well. And then, of course, there's been a couple that have done fairly poorly, but you go into it and you average it out and you go into, go into those sort of things, understanding it Understanding it, it's part of a, of a broader portfolio uh, and uh, you can uh, rationalize it that way. So I think we'll wait and see, right? Um, I, you know, if anything, I probably would want to see those numbers increase you know, I, I think $200,000 per year, like you mm-hmm. said, um, probably could be bumped up reasonably up to maybe even 300, you know, it doesn't have to be half a million, but move all those numbers up a little bit more. Like I said, if, if, a, if gasoline yeah. was 30, 30 cents a liter 30 years, 40 years ago, um, I think we can move those numbers a little bit higher at the same time and not just open it up because you could write an exam.
1: Yep. And, uh, and eliminate the ability to put register applying money into the, into those types of products.
0: I think, I think that's a letter you can write to uh, to the uh, self-regulatory organization here in Canada and see if they uh, take a bite I, on that.
1: That might be something for, it might not even necessarily be something that they have to change, but it's something maybe that, which part of the Canadian government uh, oversees register plans and stuff like mm, that, right? Mm, uh, mm, mm. Yeah, just, to, just to say, for RSP eligibility, it has to be a publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know they've, they've made that, they made the, the allowance for what can go into register plans so broad, um, that mm-hmm. certainly can be brought back a little bit. I think, I, I, I don't know. That's, that, that's an opinion. I, th- yeah. I know that's, uh, that's my opinion just from my experience. I think it would protect more investors to eliminate, to register plan money from contention, even when it comes to these types of, uh, investments.
0: Yeah. And, and I'll say, yeah, my, my two cents on that is that even though we're looking, these are large numbers again. I mean, honestly, like the average, the, the, the $200,000 income in a year, right, is, is far higher than the median average income in Canada, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I would say that if I, if I were the, the regulator, I would probably look at increasing, uh, you know, 200, just call it like 300, right? Let's make it a step increase, right? And then those other numbers that we talked about before, a commensurate increase as well, step change in that. And then um, I like your suggestion, yep anyway so it's it's not yeah it's not everybody's for everybody, but it is for some. and but I think uh, the discussion is is warranted and it's worth updating and if anybody is interested or curious as to if they would be eligible and, and maybe again go into deeper detail as to why you may even want to consider this right as part of your portfolio, um, I think both uh, Marcus and I would be more than happy to have those conversations even on a theoretical basis,
1: <laughs> we can tell you all about all the investments that are available to accredited investors,
0: <laughs> and how most yeah and how, all of them yeah excellent
1: <laughs> well there are there are some interesting things, like if you want some exact details uh I think we're both kind of reluctant to talk specifics on this episode just yeah. just so that we're not you know coming off selling certain types of investments no,
0: and exactly getting Again. people to
1: hunt down some salesperson who will sell them that investment, but uh yeah, there there's some interesting stuff out there. Um, you know, when you go beyond the uh, the basics, uh, the basic stuff available in the uh, the broad markets, uh, you know, publicly traded markets.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Should I call it that?
1: Yep. Be right. it.
0: Have a great weekend. Take care.
1: Any views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial circumstances, or general need of any individual organization or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investor Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.